Thanks for downloading episode 21 of the SAP UK podcast. As the world prepares for the upcoming UN Climate Conference in Egypt, we'll be covering a recent roundtable discussion exploring the findings from our annual SAP Insight Sustainability Study and what this means for UK businesses in their own quest to become more sustainable. It's been almost a year since COP26, where the world came together in Glasgow to tackle the issue of climate change. After a couple of challenging years with the pandemic, it felt like a reset moment for us all to once again consider the necessity of taking sustainability action and playing our part in protecting our planet. It's safe to say that the topic has never really left the business agenda, or indeed the public eye with world leaders set to reconvene at the 27th annual UN meeting in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, to discuss action to tackle climate change, it follows a year of climate-related disasters and broken temperature records. As we build up to COP27, how are business leaders responding to this urgency to address climate action? New research from SAP explores the motivations and barriers to environmental action within business, to understand both the progress we're making and what still needs to be done. In this roundtable discussion, hosted by our UK Managing Director, Mikhail Verhoeven, we discuss the findings with Stephen Jameson, Global Head of Circular Economy Solutions at SAP, Gemma Baker, Accenture's Managing Director for Sustainability, and Tim Embley, Group Research and Innovation Director at Costain. So I'm Michiel, Michiel Verhoeven, MD for SAP uh, for the last two and a half years. In the UK, we have a, a pretty sizable business here for SAP as a market. You can imagine that with an English-speaking nation, this is an amplifier market for us globally. Um, and it's also one of the largest when it comes to the transition to both cloud-based solutions as well as uh, the sustainability agenda. So there's a lot of innovation that's happened, I think, here in the UK from our teams. And Stephen Jameson, who's on the panel, uh, is leading uh, product, responsible product design as one of our products, but can also represent other products in the sustainability cockpit and dashboards that we have that he's more than happy to answer any questions you have on that, of course. Austin is one of our customers, who's a fantastic customer of ours and has become a partner in the, uh, as a result. So Costain serves many public sector um, institutions. And one of the differentiators for Costain, in my view, is the fact that they've developed solutions on top of SAP's platform that allow customers in the public sector to see their sustainability uh, metrics much faster, and not just from a little spreadsheet in a, in a database, but from a much more um, scalable solution. And if you want to know more about it, Tim is fantastic uh, for this conversation and many others. Of course, we have Gemma. We have Gemma from Accenture, who's the head of sustainability at Accenture, and she advises many clients in the domain of what you have to do to improve your sustainability capabilities in the organization and transform. So, well, we're here with a, a couple of different panelists of different nature, so client and partner, if you want, and then product group from SAP. Um, now, I can do this real quick introduction, but I want each of them to say something nonetheless that I may not have covered. So I'll start with you, Gemma. Hi, pleasure, pleasure to see you all. Um, Gemma Baker, I'm the Managing Director in our Sustainability Practice, joined um, about 11 or 12 years ago to help to found our practice. Um, but of course, the sustainability um, domain has evolved massively since then. So what was much more of an operational issue, looking at um, taking energy costs out, has become obviously a, um, an issue that's right at the top of the CSE agenda. Um, so my focus is cross-industry, um, I can give a few different client examples. Thanks for having us. Great, thank you. Tim? Good morning, Tim Emily. So look after research, innovation, emerging technology across the cost of business, uh, which is really sort of uh, differentiated to us in terms of just changing our business model. We recognize the markets that we serve are changing and therefore we need to make sure that uh, things like sustainability are at the front of the agenda, but it takes a lot of research and working with partners to do so. Uh, so just a little bit about Costain. Costain, uh, you might know in many different forms, it's been around 150 years. We predominantly operate in the UK market, but you might have travelled on a bit of infrastructure uh, here today, so we're big in the transport market. 
uh, and you might have uh, drunk some water that we've processed last night and uh, you've got out of bed, or you might have switched your light on uh, with the energy that we produce. So those are the types of things that we do. But critically, uh, it's about the integration of technology into our service going forward and working with organisations like SAP to make data a key decision tool going forward. Thank you, Jim. Stephen. Good morning. Uh, Stephen Jamieson, Global Head of Circular Economy Solutions here at SAP. Um, and my role really is to look across the world's industries and material flows and based on the fact that SAP is used by so many of our customers, so many of the world's businesses and the uh, materials that they buy and sell and, and manufacture uh, ar around the world, um, looking for those interventions, looking for those opportunities for us to be able to um, create a system change, create a system effect that ultimately enables a circular economy. Uh, and that allows us to eliminate waste, reduce emissions, um, and hopefully deliver a, a fairer society for all. And one of the interesting things from working with Stephen over the last uh, number of years has been that some of our products in sustainability have come from direct engagement with customers. So not conceptual design first about what it should be, but truly from customers responding to the need to drive more sustainable solutions and products for their customers, right? Yeah. So we, we, I, I encourage you to ask more questions about that. We've got a couple of slides and then uh, I'll rattle off some of the statistics from our study. You'll have access to that as well. Um, but the first thing is, of course, we're, we're almost at COP27. I don't know what you remember from COP26, but for me, it was that many business leaders were involved and were aware that action was required. To me, that was the one key takeaway that I personally recall. Um, and I'm saying that because we, we can't just wait for regulators or policy uh, to formulate what is required. It's really important that we embrace as a business community and take action. So what you see in the IPCC report is, of course, that now is when we need to take action. And if you listen to any academic and you look at any of the statistics, it's pretty clear that action is required now. Now, if you go to then, um, what is happening today, do customers really take action now? That may be one of the questions you have to us. And to what extent are they taking actions and in what types of initiatives? So it's not is the need for sustainability understood. It is understood. I think it is about sustainability and profitability, growth, inclusion, and it's about a number of things. But that's in a backdrop that we currently face, which all of you are aware of, rising inflation and interest rates, of course, going very, very high, affecting household incomes, uh, affecting consumer spend, affecting business sentiment and outlook and spending. And then what does that do to CapEx and OpEx investments, especially when it comes to competing projects? Do companies now want to prioritize sustainability projects higher than growth projects or profitability projects? And so the question is, how do you do both, not either or? And how do business decision makers go about that? And I think that's one of the questions that I would like to ask the panelists about, which is, what do you think should be an impetus for sustainability today, given that economic backdrop? And maybe uh, starting with, with you, Gemma, uh, what do you hear clients say and how do you respond to that? I think, um, thanks for the question, Mikhail. I think um, clients absolutely echo all of, all of your sentiments there. So yes, we're facing um, quite an unprecedented crisis with all of these macroeconomic drivers um, that, that you can see. Um, and they're doubling down actually on, on investment, um, even if um, you know, governments around the world are, are kind of paring back. Um, so I would actually paint a positive picture because we can focus on the IPCC report, we can focus on the Committee of Climate Change Status Report. You know, that's not optimistic, but I think there is one cause for optimism and that is um, the growth of renewable energy and the massive reduction in unit cost. Um, so, you know, just, just to give you a couple of, of proof points on that, I was looking at the IEA um, unit cost since the 1970s. Um, in, in the late 70s, it was about 40, 40 US dollars a watt. Um, in the 2000s, it had gone down to $5 a watt. It's now at about 20 cents a watt. And so whilst you had um, much commentary in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s, you know, questioning um, solar, questioning wind, renewables in general, 
you can see that, um, that the cost curve is painting a very optimistic picture. And so what we're seeing clients um, start to look at in terms of being on the front foot of that is what's that next wave of technology is going to look like, whether that's physical, digital, biological technologies, um, so you know, carbon capture, utilisation and storage biomass, heat pumps, etc. So clients are really looking um, forward to, to what the next wave of investment will look like. So, so your case is CapEx and OpEx should not be impacted because the cost, the cost model of energy has fundamentally changed and therefore the driver for sustainability, the, the, the resistance factor should be diminished. That's yeah. right, and I think I would always advocate, Accenture would always advocate that long-termism, mm -hmm. looking long-term at, at how um, how market structures and, and energy is, is changing. Yeah. And, and what about you, Tim? I mean, you and Costain, of course, you see a lot of clients in public sector, but also outside <laughs> public sector. What, what do you see the response will be towards sustainability and profitability in current climate? Yeah, so I think just reflecting on your points about COP26, I think uh, we woke up from a sort of period of greenwashing, uh, both public and industry uh, sort of recognized that actually we need to do something about it. So it sort of crept up, up, up on industry, I think, in terms of COP26, and we really did wake up with a hangover that we actually needed to do something properly. Uh, and I think at that point, we've seen uh, certainly public sector clients realize that they have a golden opportunity going forward here now with a, sort of a burning platform ahead. And I think uh, as they start to look at these problems, they recognise that actually putting um, sustainability at the front and centre of what they're going to procure uh, actually drives a better outcome, long-term outcome for society. So those sustainable questions, uh, the use of procurement mechanisms to get better outcomes through that process is something that we've seen quite an upturn in terms of uh, clients recognising that actually sustainability is inherent in terms of better commercial outcomes, organisations that can do this properly uh, and actually demonstrate that they are embedding it into their businesses will get a better outcome for those public sector clients. Yeah, so definitely procurement is one vehicle through which people respond. Um, but just for, for you in the room uh, to give perspective, and maybe the next slide is relevant on that. Um, if, if you take a look at the survey results that we, we had taken, um, the, the, the response is like 90% of the people that were in the survey, and there's quite a lot of UK leaders, right? So that is a global study that we did, uh, says that we need to link profitability with sustainability. So that's a pretty credible sign, and I think it emphasizes your point about input factors such as energy, and your point about procurement being one of the first ways to respond by business leaders. Now, SAP has a business network uh, called Ariba, and we link industry networks together, and we have 15 million suppliers on it. So just think about it, if 15 million suppliers each were to indicate what their sustainability metrics were, you can create massive impact in a pretty short period of time. Now, Stephen, if you, if you think about what we learned from the survey, right, so 65% believes that it will result in positive outcomes for businesses in the next five years. But they also, um, there's also a number of customers, and not everybody works with consumers in our customer base, but 49% do believe that customer demand will be the driver. So not input price, not just procurement near-term capabilities, but consumers changing their behavior and demanding sustainability metrics. Can you give some examples of that, Stephen, what you've seen? Yeah, no, I think we're seeing um, across, you know, we work with the, pretty much the entire CPG sector, for example, and I think we see across the sector a um, pretty uniform uh, embrace of, of, of the sustainability topic in general terms, but also looking at some of the specifics and practicalities. And I think one of the, one of the challenges that businesses have had for so long has been this sort of alphabet soup of, of regulation and, and standards and how to get consistent uh, insight and understanding because you know one one organization's view on a sustainable product might be different to to another and so how to create that pivot how to create that um, change is is um, you know a significant challenge and I think what our customers are doing is is they're looking at the top line questions around you know how do we um, remove uh, you know eliminate emissions from from our supply chain but more practically looking at the materials and the products themselves and what are the opportunities to eliminate waste, what are the opportunities to circulate materials, keep products in use, 
and what the opportunities to regenerate natural systems. And we're seeing, you know, across the board, brilliant examples across almost all of those different topics. You know, from servitization of products, being able to um, uh, move to sort of in the fashion uh, sector, for example, moving to more sort of clothing rental models. We see across many of our retail customers, um, through to a uh, recent case with Unilever, where we've had um, uh, the uh, utilization of our green token platform in order to be able to connect consumers through to the ultimate land use impact of, of Palm. Um, so we can get true insight throughout the supply chain on the um, sustainability um, factors of, of Palm production uh, and that we can drive certainty that it's not caused uh, uh, deforestation in that case. Um, so yeah, it's a very broad uh, space, uh, but a lot of examples across the whole piece. See if I can just add to what you may not be familiar with it, but the Unilever example you just gave is a very important one. Unilever, at the end of the day, makes one product called butter, and it has palm oil or other ingredients. And palm oil needs to be sustainably sourced, and of course, you don't want more deforestation. So the input of that is palm oil products from farmers in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And our, our team worked with um, a solution called Green Token, which is a blockchain solution. That based, and, and maybe you can tell a little bit more about it, how, how it works. But it's really been a great pilot driven by the need from a large company to respond to consumers differently, create visibility in the supply chain, but at the same time, see a revenue opportunity um, in the market to differentiate an otherwise commodity product, right? So can you tell a little bit more, how does it really work? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the essence of it is essentially um, how, how to mirror the real world material flow with data, essentially. So being able to say, um, you know, if we've got a, a batch of material, um, a batch of palm in this case, uh, being able to have certainty based on the producers who create that material or create that palm, um, and then being able to say, you know, this material has come from a uh, sustainable source, and we can load that essentially into the into the platform, and we can say this has come from a, a certified, trusted source, um, and then any other material that comes through that process, we can say is essentially untrusted, and it's essentially unsustainable. And so this this idea of what we call commingled commodities, where we have you know maybe eighty percent sustainable, 20% from non-sustainable sources, and as that batch travels through the process, sort of whatever happens to that batch as it's mixed together with other um, um, materials or products throughout the supply chain, uh, we, can cr we can drive that chain of custody sh assurance because we're using up through the blockchain, uh, because we're tracking uh, the movement of that batch through the blockchain, we're able to see with confidence you know, that what's happened at the input side um, is clear and transparent to what comes through at the output side uh, and, and driving that right through to ultimately the, the label on the product uh, as that hits the supermarket shelf. Um, and that's it. the interesting thing about this topic is it's, I think Mikhail touched on it at the beginning here, here, is that these aren't solutions that are sort of dreamed up by you know, a development team um, you know, in, in Germany somewhere. These are front-end you know, customer innovations that have been born in this case in Southeast Asia our teams in Australia and Indonesia um, really working together to kind of co-innovate with our customers on the ground and find the solutions that work in the first mile. And that's the most important piece here, is that we cannot deliver sustainability if we're not understanding what's actually happening in the farming communities, uh, what's happening in, in you know, the agricultural spaces where most of this activity needs to happen uh, if we're to you know, bring the community with us on this, uh, on this important journey. No. Thank you, Stephen. And, and Gemma, what, what types of examples do you see in your client portfolio of people taking action and saying, yes, I care about profit and sustainability, and yes, I see a growth opportunity for me as a company in the future? Yeah, so perhaps I'll move away from the consumer products and make, you know, give a couple of other examples. So one, one from industry um, would be Anglo-American, actually. Um, one of the most sustainable mining companies in the world, um, not always an oxymoron, and um, they've got um, their carbon um, net zero carbon mandate by 2050 in line with the Paris Agreement, like many of the other FTSE 100, um, but with eight mines to be carbon neutral by 2040. And one of the main levers in which they're hoping to, to get to that is, is with investment in green hydrogen. Um, so they've just spun out um, new gen. Um, 
with with a, a team based in Seattle. Um, you know, they had the trucks up in the first um, hydrogen powered trucks up and running last year. So that's a really interesting example. Another would be um, from financial services. I spend quite a lot of my time at the moment focused there. So if you think about the various um, trends, particularly since COP26 with um, the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS, um, the standardisation that came out, which perhaps we'll talk about a bit later, but a great example of, of um, some progress there is the European Bank, BNP Paribas. Um, I think it's probably the Asian and the European banks that are leading the way on, on decarbonisation actually. Um, both from um, the perspective of um, aligning to the task force related for financial related um, disclosure, TCFD, um, you know, looking at how they can really um, improve governance around climate change, looking at their strategy, um, looking at their risks, etc. But also um, um, being open about the sectors that are most emissions intensive, um, like oil and gas, energy, automotive. Um, they've been reporting on that um, for, for more than a couple of years, I think since about 2017, 2018. Um, and are also known for um, their green bonds, their sustainability linked loans. I think um, the MPP would be a good example as well. One of the questions raised here was looking at the use of blockchain technology. How much more expensive is blockchain to your supply chain? We've seen some great pilot examples, but how do you scale these while keeping costs down? So I, I don't think um, you know it's, it, it's be reasonable for me to say that we, we've kind of created the aha moment and have all the answers to how you kind of get the reach the scale moment. But what this is is a, a an approach that combines multiple different solutions. So, for example, you know the the, the topic we have with with blockchain, with um, in Unilever's case. You know, we're really we're really working out a number of different things simultaneously here. We're, under, we're, we're understanding that the the technology use case. We're also understanding the the use case of getting disparate stakeholders to collaborate in a way that perhaps they've not done previously. Um, we're working through what are the incentives, what are the, the financial flows, what are the regulatory uh, levers for this, um, and and so what these use cases do is they they help explode all of the. The, the issues and challenges involved in, in making all of these different uh, collaborations work and function. And so I think to sort of look at the technology itself and go, well, how do we scale that technology is kind of missing the point. Um, because actually, we've got to look at how we scale the system and how we scale the system solution. Um, blockchain is so far what we're, what we're seeing, and with Green Token, there's been a, a sort of a fantastic proof point to be able to demonstrate that uh, a sort of end to end example. Um, as we now innovate our wider portfolio of solutions across the SAP sustainability portfolio, you know we, we know that this technology will play a role in some way, but now we look at how we scale that amongst the wider portfolio of network technologies we have. So it's, um, it's important not to get too sort of focused on the kind of the buzzwords, if you like, of, of, of blockchain and these technologies, but look at the kind of the bigger system questions and the system challenges that we need to tackle uh, and how we achieve that. Um, uh, amongst the wide portfolio of technology opportunities that we have to our disposal. Yeah. So if I can chat, can you go to the next slide? Yeah. Your question is a really good one. So how do you scale from a pilot project and how do you systematically capture your carbon footprint? Um, so we as SAP came out of business process automation a long time ago, right? That, that's our expertise. And what we believe you need to create is a carbon accounting mechanism, fundamentally. So if you're really good at capturing money throughout the supply chain, money throughout your processes in your organization, why would you not be able to do the same thing with carbon per material code, per item, which then rolls up into your aggregate products? The blockchain example we gave is just one way of aggregating, but you need to capture that footprint at some point, right? So what we believe you can scale is if people actually relied on the data in a systematic manner, consistent manner throughout your enterprise. So if you look at the decision makers, and most people responded, this is what, six and a half thousand people, 300 in the UK. Most people say, my data is not accurate. I'm, I'm doing pilot projects, and I'm doing spreadsheets and visualization, but I'm not really systematically capturing the data. So that, to us, is a huge opportunity for SAP and for our partners and for our customers to collaborate on. Um, Tim, I think you're, you're dying to say something because you are absolutely in the business of scaling your capabilities and sustainability. Can you comment a little bit about what you do and how you do it? 
Yeah, so uh, we work in an industry that requires a lot of data to do the things that we do, and um, a lot of that is just done on Excel spreadsheets, uh, disappointingly. And um, with that use case, we've worked very closely with government to say, well, what are your key policy drivers in terms of sustainability? What are your key po policy drivers around decarbonisation? And we've um, sort of uh, gone through a number of personas. So uh, this is a very complex agenda, meaning lots of different things to lots of different people, uh, and lots of data flying around, and people finding really hard to link a policy decision to something very practical happening on the ground. So we've heard some couple of good examples there around blockchain. Uh, but what we've done is uh, worked with uh, UK government, in this case, Department for Transport, and looked at their key metrics around policy of driving efficiency uh, across their supply chain. And it comes back to your points around data in the supply chain. Uh, what we've started to find, find when collecting this data, it drives greater efficiency and removes steps from the process. So our POC on uh, blockchain that we've done with HS2 identified that we're removing steps in the process, all of those costing money. Now, in fact, it scales up across an industry, you're looking at sort of 20% savings across industry. And that ultimately uh, could lend itself to uh, uh, more schools being built, more hospitals and things like that, certainly in the public sector. So uh, this whole drive around um, uh, data and carbon and greater efficiency is really important and I think we're at the start of the journey to get that right. So some of the sectors now are looking at these use cases and saying, right, okay, what can we do? So water is another good example. Water companies are now getting together uh, through an open data approach looking at what data they can share between different water companies. So Seven Trent, Thames Water, United Utilities, all separate entities, all doing similar sort of things, but actually could data drive better outcomes to the end users, you and I, the bill pay. Very good, thank you. Gemma, maybe some question for you as well. The role of data and systematically capturing it through the enterprise, um, how do you respond to that as, a, as an Accenture consultant to your clients? Yeah, it's a great question and um, maybe to, to talk a bit about the problem first and then how we respond. So we're, we're seeing that in general it's very much aligned with the SAP results. Um, you know, the targets are set at a group level and then at a business unit level. The tone from the top is very much set on sustainability. It's now much more about operationalising it and the single biggest challenge to operationalising it is across the board, it's data. Um, you know, they, that data often sits in silos um, and, and if we think about what what, what are the different types of data that, that you need as a Chief Sustainability Officer to track progress? Um, you know, there's the, it's very, very varied. So there's the physical risk data um, at an asset level, geospatial data. Um, there's the transition risk data, so looking at um, your supply chain um, targets and metrics and um, carbon emissions, um, for instance, of your supply chain, so in terms of the glide path to, to net zero. Um, there's the, the regulation which is changing very, very quickly um, and is difficult to, to, to stay up to date with. So the, the amount of data is very disparate um, and much of the data is um, not comparable, um, to, to be honest, which, which is a massive challenge. So this is where, obviously, as Accenture, we're, we're playing a really big role. Um, we're starting to see that um, companies are even bringing in someone that is in charge of data, so i.e. head of ESG data at an organisational level. Um, what, what we tend to do is um, recommend working with one or, or just a handful of vendors um, because again the vendor landscape is super broad when it comes to this topic um, and then we would really advocate for putting in place a, a clear control framework um, as well as um, aligning to some of those um, mandatory and also voluntary standards as well. Thank you Jim. Um, Stephen I'd like you to comment a little bit about our cockpits our footprint manager and how we tackle this problem for customers. Yeah, so the, I mean, this is uh, we're with um, one of our large CPG customers just the other day, and they were kind of articulating the challenge in terms of how you track every material, every factor across every node of the supply chain. I mean, you think about the sheer scale of that on a global organization, you know, your, your, your brain kind of begins to, to sort of melt down. It's such a vast sort of topic. And I think one of the challenges so far has been, I mentioned at the beginning, this sort of alphabet soup of, of regulation, of, of standards. There's such, such a sort of lack of clarity in terms of, you know, what should be measured where, when, and why. Um, and, and I think, you know, to give COP26 some credit, you know, I think we're now start, starting to see with ISSB a kind of a, 
a consensus emerging in terms of some of the uh, regulatory frameworks and standard standards that we should be uh, starting to follow and maybe, maybe as we go towards next year we'll see, we'll see that kind of crystallize more um, and I think we're starting to see the context in which we're operating in business uh, get a little bit more well defined in terms of how we should be measuring uh, some of these topics but what we're, our approach at SAP is not to wait for that because if we wait for the perfect moment in standards um, you know the the, 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 the opportunity is going to have gone for, for the planet not, not from a business standpoint um, and so our, our approach is to say you know where where's the where are the good things happening you know so UK plastic packaging tax one of those sort of slightly curious UK things that we've innovated here um, actually it's a real high point in, in kind of global regulation but organizations we are working with all around the world are looking at the UK as a real exemplar in this particular topic um, we have it Italy and Spain uh, following SAP responsible design and production to really tackle these very specific challenges uh, and really help make them actionable from a business standpoint so if you're and we, we talked if you would listen to our earnings announcement yesterday for our Q3 earnings you'll have heard of the example of Tetra Pak you know, we're helping organizations to really get that granular insight on what's happening um, in the, the packaging that they're buying, um, how that packaging is working through the supply chain, what the um, characteristics of that packaging is, what the impact of it is, is it recyclable, is it compostable, uh, and then helping businesses take the, it, take the decisions on what are the, what's the most effective strategy to transform that packaging uh, into something that's ultimately, ultimately going to be sustainable for application in a particular given market um, and so these are really complex supply chain challenges that we're looking very practically at the opportunities to um, you know provide that end-to-end -end insight that end-to-end -end actual um, uh, utilization of actual data uh, in order to inform decision making and as these regulations grow as they coalesce as they drive consistency when we see the UN plastics treaty for example come in come online in two years time we should start to see these proof points become um, more kind of standard ways of doing things, and in which case, you know, we'll have the, the platform and the framework on, on which business can act. Yeah, thank you, Stephen. So, if you listen to what uh, Gemma and Stephen were saying, it's really that the next reason not to scale your pilot project is the fear of the data challenge, right? That is, and we're trying to say you don't need to be fearful of that. You can tackle it. And, and in fact, there's many ways to tackle it. Tim already gave an example that procurement is one way to get started quite swiftly. Collaboration with others, such as in the water industry, is another method. And in the automotive industry, and we do have some automotive industry left in the UK, um, there is a real opportunity to collaborate because in Germany, the government gave a massive subsidy, 200 million if I'm not yeah. mistaken, 200 million subsidy to the automotive makers to collaborate with their downstream suppliers. So input products for, uh, let's say, car components. There are, there are many, many suppliers, as you can imagine. Imagine that every one of the suppliers simply captures the carbon footprint per material item. And then you map the material codes through the supply chain, ultimately, until you have a car assembled. Can you, can you visualize what I'm saying? So thousands of components now added up gives it a carbon footprint. Then you have, of course, scope three, what's the customer actually doing with it, and what's their carbon footprint. But that's ultimately what is, number one, a government incentive, but two, an industry collaboration forum that really does require a here and now presence. So we're encouraged by collaboration in an industry, and when we listen to our clients, we, we see more appetite for that. Um, I'd like Tim to give an example of that, specifically of what you're doing in Castaigne, because this is not talk for you, this is already in practice. Yeah, so obviously uh, dealing with a lot of public sector clients that are responsible for facilitating society, uh, there's some big challenges out there. And if you look at the transport sector, for example, a, a big pollutant in terms of the, the projects that they build, such as roads and railways, uh, and then think about the things that run on uh, road and rail. Uh, so, uh, from our point of view, it's about understanding how do we capture the, the data from that embedded environment that's been created, so for example a road project. How do we take that policy of decarbonisation or efficiency and then look at particular road projects and then understand how we can drive efficiency there. So it's all about data extraction across a very uh, wide and vast supply chain 
to look at then benchmarking and then seeing how we can actually improve. So there's particular drivers in the industry around modern methods of construction. How quickly is the industry adopting this? Is it driving better efficiency savings and so on? So using the, the SAP technology, uh, we've put a layer in to help decision makers extract the data and understand what's going on. So practical things, and, and just linking on back to the, um, the, the blockchain example, a very practical thing is, uh, as you go across and see any construction site, you'll see little yellow machines moving earthworks around. They're burning a huge amount of diesel. That diesel will cost a huge amount of money if we get things wrong in terms of moving too much mud, digging too, too far into the ground. So the, there's a point about efficiency of the machine, those IoT devices, those machines being connected into the, uh, into the SAP technology in real time to make better decisions in terms of how efficient those machines are being used. That's a really good example of real-time information can understand how efficient uh, a particular road is or a particular rail uh, line and actually understanding that so decisions can be made and changed instantly uh, uh, so we get better efficiency. What we've seen actually, and this is a behavioural change as a result of collecting that data, there's been a surge in, uh, in uh, more green technology, so more hydrogen being used out on site, uh, more uh, uh, green fuels. So there's been a sort of drive for these technologies. Uh, and one final point, and it's a real great outcome in terms of that activity, uh, National Highways, one of their biggest challenges is HGVs. So think about logistics across the network uh, of uh, goods coming in from ports, going to uh, uh, transfer facilities and then out to our homes delivering goods. And this is one of government's biggest pains. So heavy goods vehicles make up 18% of uh, emissions on the road, but actually only 1% of the actual total traffic, so a big sort of challenge to deal with. And actually just working through government and national highways to understand the logistics and how all this is working, we're looking at three technologies. Uh, hydrogen is very important, but actually it's not here, it's not ready now. Uh, electrification, so big batteries, there's some big challenges there, they are big to power these vehicles. So uh, is uh, electrification a more hybrid uh, sort of technology required to help the transition? So what the data is actually allowing us to do is look at, uh, from a logistics use case, how to decarbonise the strategic road network to get better uh, outcomes for the end consumer in terms of those goods when they're delivered from port to your home, are they going through a decarbonised transport network? Uh, so this is one of the great things that came out of COP. So COP, COP DFT identified, I think it was about £400 million for this, uh, uh, a number of uh, projects happened across the UK, some in hydrogen, some in big batteries, and some in uh, electric road systems, looking at decarbonisation of heavy goods vehicle, vehicles, which will affect you and I as uh, end consumers, but also hopefully it will improve uh, pollution on the road, uh, and uh, hopefully make things more efficient in terms of uh, less carbon uh, in that transport logistic network. So what we've seen is uh, industries helping each other out, using data to make better decisions. And where we've got a gut instinct, well, actually, it's got to be carbon. Uh, actually saying, is carbon the right choice for us now? Because if we chose, uh, sorry, if hydrogen is the, the choice now, um, is that the right technology for, for, for decarbonisation of heavy goods vehicles? At the minute, if you took uh, uh, one diesel uh, lorry off the road and replaced that with a hydrogen fuel delivery, it would take another 18 lorries to deliver the same amount of energy to power uh, those, those heavy goods vehicles. So the equations that we're looking at in terms of actually what's the right technology for heavy goods vehicles is quite a complex one and some big decisions to made made by the logistics industry, which will all come back to the science and data uh, that we're now starting to look at as, as a nation. Looking at hydrogen as an alternative energy source, there are obviously natural resource constraints here. It's hard enough to get data on carbon, but nature is much more complex in terms of gathering that data. How are you addressing this challenge? Yeah, it is, I, I think you're, you're raising the level of um, one more step up, right? The data to capture anything related to carbon, then uh, what can we do not just about carbon footprint, but what can we do about nature risk in general? How do you measure that and track that? 
Gemma, maybe this is a question for you is in the consulting industry. Sure. How do you respond to that? I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think whereas um, carbon, I mean, it still is the focus, of course, given where we are in society and the big action gap, the big delivery gap, but actually the, the focus for many of our clients now is nature and biodiversity. Um, so at Accenture, we um, helped to launch the campaign called Get Nature Positive. And we, we've got a number of um, pilots already um, with clients. And the single biggest challenge, again, no surprise when it comes to, um, to, to nature, is data. You're absolutely right. It's actually quite straightforward to do a carbon footprint and to, to gather that data. Most companies have that information. Um, nature is, is so much more difficult. I mean, just to build on that, I think, uh, again, couldn't agree more um, in terms of that, that, that focus. It's, it, I would say, preoccupies our thinking in terms of how we drive the programme forward, in terms of how we ultimately address the nature challenge. Um, I think from, from you know, we, we can't address nature without looking at the, the topic of agriculture. And, um, you know, I think if you look at what needs to be done there, um, first and foremost, we need to find a way of supporting essentially the farming community um, in transitioning what they do uh, and moving from, you know, what is a set of techniques which generates relatively high yields into a set of techniques which may in the short term produce lower yields. And the only way that could practically happen is through the, the, the rolling down of some kind of incentive mechanism. So we as technologists, you know, we can, we can create as many, you know, input scenarios and as many technology scenarios as you'd like in terms of how to um, track and monitor uh, the sort of the land use impact of, of decisions that get made, but without accompanying that without with, with some kind of incentive mechanism, which then helps to support those sort of first mile communities in making the changes they need to make, the the, the adoption is unlikely. So this is where we kind of get into this sort of combination of both technology innovation and sort of policy innovation side by side, mm. um, and the need for us to kind of work collaboratively as we tackle these challenges. Very good. Looking at agriculture in particular and the farming communities where products are sourced, do you have any examples of ways in which organisations can better understand their supply chains and ensure that their products are more sustainable? If you don't measure it, you don't know it. You're just making hypotheses and assumptions. And that's what you know, most respondents are doing today, right? They're not using data, as you can see from the survey, as a decision input. So our, our advocacy is first measure and account, second optimize in your design cycle and that's what yeah. Steven's team is exactly working on with that product design capability. Yeah, you, you're looking for a specific, specific example on the, the agricultural side. And what, what, so you know, again, I'm not going to claim that we've got all the answers, but what, there are some specific things that we are doing. Um, one of them is using the technology we have called rural sourcing management which really helps enable that kind of first mile community with you know, mobile devices essentially and helping them to ensure that their produce and their, their, um, their crop is essentially effectively um, handled throughout the, the supply chain. Um, and so we've been working with, um, I think, I forget the name now, it's Barry Calibo, it's a chocolate company, um, where we're helping with, with rural sourcing management to help educate um, the, 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 the sort of farming community about you know, new ways of doing things, new innovations and new ways that they can help sort of drive potentially more regenerative practices. So there are things that can be done, sort of that are, let's say, quick wins. Um, but you know, as pre to, to my previous point, that needs to be accompanied with some wider sort of system uh, in, in, uh, incentive. Um, and, and in terms of the the the, the point around uh, how do we, you know, assure assure the change. You know, I, I think again, this is this is a really about mar marrying these. These these, uh, these these drivers that you know that the, the, there is a regulatory driver in, in many cases. There's there is often now an, an investment driver in terms of ESG. Um, m most often, businesses genuinely want to do the right thing, um, and I'm I'm constantly impressed by how ambitious business actually is uh, in, in terms of their willingness to, to to act alongside consumer action. And so the the, the more that we are able to provide. Um, and, and often the barrier is the ability, is the inability to get the, the kind of the insight into the hands of the right person in order to create the right change. And so the more that through using data and systems that we're providing, uh, we're able to unlock those collaborations, uh, enable designers to speak to um, uh, the sustainability team in order to speak to the tax team 
uh, in order to be able to, to create that common understanding, um, then then that positive change can happen. But this is, these are multi-factor problems. You know, we're going from a world where we generally used to care about cost and quality to worrying about a world now where we're worrying about cost and quality, recyclability, and the impact on nature, and the CO2 impacts, and the water impacts, and the social impacts, and, and all those different topics. And that's a, a, a much more sophisticated um, set of um, you know, criteria in which we need to, to, to work through. Um, so the more we're able to unlock that collaboration, the more we're able to, able to drive consistency and be able to, to surface those different drivers into the core business decision-making process, the quicker change can happen. While we won't use the word unprecedented, I think we're all a little tired of that term by now, but businesses have and continue to face a tough macroeconomic environment. The economic outlook is looking pretty grim. Cost of living crisis, recession on the horizon, concerns with employment, rising inflation and supply chain shortages as a result of the pandemic and geopolitical conflict has meant that leaders are having priorities pulled in all directions, while energy disruption is tightening budgets and causing workforce uncertainty. The question here is, will these economic challenges disrupt the sustainability ambition or should this be seen as an impetus for accelerated investment in sustainability initiatives? I, I actually, I, I echo what Stephen said, um, with, with the C-suite and the leaders that we come across, they understand that the only growth is sustainable growth, um, and we've not, we've not seen um, budgets being cut. I think, you know, in, in times of economic uncertainty and stress, which is what the UK in particular is facing at the moment, but it is also global, if you look at the energy crisis, commodity shortages, etc., um, I, I think um, business leaders have now woken up to the fact years ago um, that there is only one one path. Um, you know, we're we're um, starting um, quite quite a few large scale projects with clients. We haven't necessarily seen that um, that impacted. I think from a sector by sector perspective, um, where a large share of our work is at the moment, it's um, in, in the UK. It's probably resources, um, it's financial services, um, two sectors that are arguably a little further behind than your consumer packaged goods and, um, um, and retailers. Um. So how do you put an ROI cost on moving towards more sustainable options? And how do you weigh up the short term versus the long term benefit? Um, it's not one conversation I've had with any customer, just to Gemma's point. It doesn't mean the data is wrong. I'm just saying it's not really what we're hearing at, at the C-suite level. Perhaps at operational manager levels, it could be different. Uh, and that was my point about CapEx, OpEx allegations. Do, do you think, Tim, maybe not just for Costain, but also for your customer base, people are going to shift spending? Yeah, we're seeing that now. So there's more projects out there in terms of uh, sustainable requirements. So whether it's the electrification of the transport network, and therefore clients sort of spending in that space trying to encourage that transition quickly. We're looking at carbon capture, for example. Uh, so th there is an intensity from the leadership within our sector to do things in this area. But I think what we're seeing, picking up Gemma's point, uh, certainly cost aim, we're investing in people to actually understand data. So we've employed someone from Microsoft that sits on the exec board that's responsible for data. Uh, we've employed someone from the Carbon Dis Disclosure Project, uh, head of data. So it, I suppose from our perspective, it's how we uh, are focusing on the right people, uh, changing our business model because we recognize as an industry, we've got to change, otherwise we will not have an industry. So I think business leaders in our industry are starting to wake up and funnel investment in the right places to help uh, hit the ESG targets because our clients want to buy this. So it's something, if we want to remain in this market, we really need to change our profile, our intensity, and get it right uh, because uh, our business model is changing, our clients' requirements are changing, and we need to do something about it. That's good. It's important just to think as well. What, what we're seeing is, um, you know, maybe traditionally, you know, sustainability and ESG spending was sort of a preserve of this sustainability team in a business. And, and now what we're seeing is every line of business, every business function, are now leaning into this. So actually, a lot of the conversations I'm having with businesses, very rarely with the sustainability team. Actually, it's most definitely not with the CFO. It's with the tax teams. It's with the front end business functions who actually have to make this change happen. And that's where the budgets are coming from. They're, they're invariably not labelled as ESG. 
but the outcome is ESG. Um, and, and it's important to reflect that in terms of how, how to think about the, the financial flows here. Yeah. So uh, last week I was with a very large consumer products goods company and the person most persistent on the ESG topic, particularly on carbon footprint tracking, was the head of supply chain in the company. So yes, they look at procurement. Uh, yes, they look at the sort of input prices. What can we do to substitute energy? Um, but when it comes to sourcing, I think they were very clear that they need to drive working capital efficiencies while meeting ESG goals. So additional budget for um, for software or for consultancies, you know, for ESG, perhaps not. But the reallocation of spend from one category to the, to the, the real things that matter, yes, I definitely think so. A question raised here was around support for small businesses. It's all very well if you're a large company with lots of resource who can hire a head of data, but what support can we provide to these small enterprises and businesses to help make sustainability changes? I think um, I would credit actually the banks um, for, for mm -hmm. acting in this area, um, possibly because externally and certainly by customers and um, consumers they perhaps don't get the, the credit. But if you look at um, companies like um, NatWest, um, Barclays with unreasonable impact, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, you've got um, the banks um, that for, for years actually have been trying to position as an SME, cost, um, SME bank of choice and, and um, almost all of them actually in the UK are, are providing tools in order to um, calculate your carbon footprint, um, understand your impacts across the supply chain, understand how to engage with suppliers. Um, so I, I think there are programmes available, um, particularly in financial services. So we have one in SAP called SAP Ariba Network, that's what I mentioned earlier. We, we want as many suppliers to be onboarded and um, there are free onboarding capabilities for suppliers. So in the times of COVID, when people were short on uh, medical uh, supplies, um, many people onboarded to this network and started finding new sales channels for their product. That network, is we are aiming to capture um, carbon footprint uh, and other statistics as well so that people can qualify and, and go to market as an SME with better capabilities. Um, so there's a huge network effect that we believe is necessary. I think financial service providers definitely do something. Um, but I also think that's where probably uh, apprenticeships and skills, uh, we need to think about these programs as well. That, and I think the UK government is trying to do more in that space, by the way. And maybe, Tim, if you can comment a little bit about skills and capability building, because this is not just a true, not just something that everybody picks up. Yeah, so th there's a number of aspects that we're particularly interested in. Uh, and one, I should say, in our industry, is the sustainability school, uh, which is open to all our supply chain and certainly those smaller organisations. So over, I would say, probably the last five years, uh, we've been working, uh, getting our experts to educate the supply chain and what needs to be done. So. As a result of that, we've seen a lot more uh, SMEs engage with the agenda because it's given clarity. Uh, so it's almost doing sustainability on a shoestring because I'm a small organisation, I've got all these things to worry about, but just tell me what do I need to do. And I think the Sustainability School has been a great place to say these are the important things to our industry, these are things we're unsure about, but go away and explore. And so the next big trend that we're seeing is um, investment uh, from government uh, in grants and things like that, and that's been very helpful. So a lot of the organisations that have upskilled themselves have got access to grants, and we're seeing some really great innovation come into our supply chain through through sort of small organisations. And then the next thing, the, the, the big thing, um, probably probably relatively uh, novel for government is they've looked around the world and said. Well, where are we in terms of investment that's happening? And they've recognised the UK is not very good at venturing, uh, corporate venturing. So um, we've worked with HS2 to look at raising £50 million pounds to actually help small organisations on the back of that investment of HS2 to actually support organisations with great ideas to upscale their businesses to address some of these big global challenges. And hopefully we'll see those businesses not only solve some of the national challenges in the UK, but scale and then uh, go overseas as well. It's another one for SMEs, um, UK social enterprise. So for uh, companies that class, uh, larger companies are working more and more s responsible towards uh, sourcing, particularly SAP by the way, all our supplies here in the office are all sourced from social enterprise on purpose. So our procurement officer works as part of UK social enterprise. And 
collectively in the UK, I think 250 million has now gone over the last couple of years to social enterprises with 2,700 new jobs created in that space. So that's kind of a, I mean, 2,700 may not sound like a big number, but it is at least a deliberate initiative to create more employment and more awareness that buying social really matters. So how do you put an ROI cost on moving towards more sustainable options? And how do you weigh up the short-term versus the long-term benefit? Great question. Well, you're in the logistics space, Tim, and this is must, I'm sure that your customers ask this question. <laughs> they do. Uh, and sometimes, uh, I mean, there's been a big topic over the last 15 years in our industry that looks at capital investment, which a lot of our projects sort of focus on capital investment, which is big sums of money. And that is often disconnected to the operational costs. So we've seen this trend of what we call TOTEX, so looking at the total expenditure of those assets over a period of time and actually then changing the investment profile. And we've seen clients actually say, uh, certainly in the early days, we will invest a little bit more to get greater efficiency out of either the energy consumption of, of the buildings, the materials that are going in, etc., because they've realized uh, they're in a long-term game. So the, the return on investment uh, has started to change in terms of the way they procure and the questions that they ask. Uh, to, to, to change the business model. So we have seen that general cha change in the industry. Um, I think on a more local level, uh, so th de delivering things like Crossrail, uh, HS2, the client is now more interested and during delivery of Crossrail, the chief exec started with no sustainability targets and then ended up with a, a percentage of sustainability uh, in his sort of bonus and therefore it was, became very prevalent in that period of time that actually the business cases started to change during the life of that project. So one, it's gone more personal in terms of the exec actually having to do something, mm -hmm. and two, clients wanting to change uh, because they realise that they can drive a better long-term sustainable outcome. Gemma, and it comes from you on the logistics. I mean, I think it's a very fair point, which is sustainability, but please lower my cost of goods sold over time. Yeah, I won't comment directly on logistics, um, but more, um, more, more to say that actually there's a flip side to cost, um, which is externalities, actually. So I think companies are starting to understand that um, whether it's direct externalities and potentially a carbon tax or risk of a carbon tax or indirect externalities um, like reputation risk, um, risk of lack of commodities. So, you know, I, I would encourage a much broader understanding of cost and, and I see that most, mm. most clients are there as well. Stephen? I'll just pull out some stats actually because we've just, um, so we've been in the market now with SAP Responsible Design and Production for a year and we're just now starting to get our first sort of insights in terms of what our customers are um, are seeing in their own organisations and what, what, we're, what we're finding is um, in terms of the actual accuracy of, of reporting your obligations, so things like plastic packaging taxes, um, what tends to happen is if you don't calculate it accurately you tend to overspend to make sure that you're not sort of underdoing it. And so, uh, by being more accurate, we're seeing a 10 to 28% uh, reduction in EPR fees and plastic tax fees. We're seeing a 50 to 80% improvement in productivity in terms of the process for reporting um, and the effort required in, in, in reporting. And interestingly, we're seeing between 1 and 5% revenue impact. Um, so, uh, and I think this is the most interesting one, which is, you know, businesses that would otherwise be um, you know, producing materials that are unsustainable and potentially with ongoing consumer impacts. Uh, we're actually starting to, they're starting to see now that this has a, a positive um, uh, revenue benefit as well. So it's a, it's a mix of different drivers that are, that are helping, uh, helping support this. Very good. Thank you. The research has clearly shown that consumers are a major driver of sustainable action. But what examples are we seeing in the retail sector, for example, and are they leading the way compared to other sectors? It's a very good question. I, I'm not going to sit here and say that um, fashion and retail is, is far, far ahead. Um, and actually it's kind of comparing apples with oranges if you compare um, you know, retail with logistics, for instance. But what, what I would say is that retail is in a very different place in terms of consumer awareness um, compared to even five years ago. Um, I mean, just look at um, Primark's journey, for, for instance. Um, you know, what one of the most um, uh, biggest proponents of fast fashion, arguably, in, in the past like, 10, 15 years, 
and actually they've they've sort of gone 180 with, with their business strategy and that's that's starting to have an impact now. Yeah, if you if you think about apparel, we have a number of apparel customers as well. They're all looking at how can we do more responsible design to, to Stephen's point. What can we do more to market in a way and, and give the experience with customers in a more digital rather than an in-store experience. Uh, the consumer awareness, yes, is very high, but behaviors are still not changing as fast from all of us, right? Um, but if I think about retail and, and groceries, for example, uh, waste is a very big topic, right? So let's not underestimate that. Waste is a very significant percentage of revenues for, for most retailers. And how you re, re, how reuse that or distribute that onwards is a function also of how you optimize and plan for what is in your inventory in the first place. Now, thanks to COVID or due to COVID and supply chain spikes, uh, there's been massive amounts of waste for all retailers because it's very inefficient to hold inventory in multiple places, but which is what most companies are doing. They're holding more safety stock closer to the end consumer. So they spend more working capital, and forget the statistics of it was, but I think 86% of the UK companies we interviewed said, we're going to do more safety stock. That's the opposite of sustainability and efficiency, if you think about it. Right? It's more capital, and it's faster to the consumer, but it's not more sustainable. And so we need to go back to trust in a supply chain in order to restore that visibility and reliability on each other. So I think there's a lot that can be said about our consumer behaviors and our impatience with empty shelves, right? Product availability and waste both go hand in hand. Stephen, anything else from you to add on this topic? You know, I, you know, I was at the, our fashion council last week, for example, in, in Paris. We had 25 of our leading sort of fashion customers there. You know, this is, this is the topic in terms of uh, how they not just um, uh, help sort of transform the back end of their business, but how they stay relevant and viable with the front end of the business and um, you know the, the, the three me three messages earlier in terms of how they eliminate waste how they um, make sure they're producing materials and garments that are durable and long living so that they don't just have a long life in their first use but they're then returned um, can be reutilized re and uh, and given a second life as well as being produced from uh, regenerative sources you know that that these are the all the questions on their lips at the moment yeah. um, and uh, is driving many of the conversations in terms of how they, how they go forwards. Finally, is this not an argument for decommoditization, producing locally, paying a proper wage, rather than extending supply chains and creating a lot more waste? The circular economy is all about trying to change business models. To what extent are businesses getting this and really looking at changing their own business models into more of a circular model it's a fantastic question, and I, you deal with a lot of the banks. I think a lot of it is driven by where is capital deployed, who is the investor. Let's not forget that on boards of companies, most attention is still spent on investors and shareholders, right? Not yet on uh, nature impact or employee well-being or um, more ESG-type goals, if you want. I, I think the dominance is still on the finance topic. If you look at companies and boards and compensation schemes, yes, ESG metrics are part of it, and they're part of long-term incentives, but they're not the dominant factor yet. Fundamentally, I think that's what would have to change for people to take action in a more dramatic way. The other one is, of course, geopolitical forces. In the semiconductor industry, it's pretty clear what's happening, no? The over-reliance on, on Taiwan. I, I think UK has an opportunity to innovate right now and locally produce. Uh, in strategic industries. And so I, th I do think there's a policy element for that, for which industries are strategic to the UK um, that you need local capability building for. I think that's a, it's a real policy agenda. A um, little harder to answer as a technologist in a, in a tech company, but I don't know what you're, anybody wants yeah, to chime sure, in, feel I, free. I will. And actually not from a financial perspective, but just a general, a general point, a couple of points. So. Of, of course we do, we have to decouple uh, growth from consumption um, and actually if you just if you look at emissions overall of the very macro picture is that decarbonisation, um, the energy transition in particular, only actually solves for half of greenhouse gas emissions, the other half is, is, has got to down, come down to reducing consumption. So I think um, companies are starting to get that um, but are less advanced than perhaps they are on, on climate and, and energy actually. 
um, I, I think I, I also agree with your point on um, um, more local production. Mm. Um, very challenging, and, and if you look at, and in fact, the Ellen, Ellen MacArthur Foundation, you know, um, a single product, a pneumatic drill, for instance, um, has 200 components. Um, uh, that was a study many, many years ago, possibly even a decade ago, when they, when they first formed and, and had a view on this topic. And I um, wrote the five business models in Accenture's um, waste, original Waste to Wealth book on the circular economy, which is going back quite a few years ago now, 2015. Um, you talked to some of the business models in, in your introduction, Stephen. Um, but the circular economy, reducing consumption of stuff, is absolutely critical to the mm -hmm. debate. And we have such clear opportunities. You know, mo most of the glass in the UK, for example, when it's reprocessed, finds its way overseas again. Mm -hmm. um, we have a huge demand through the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, through the global commitment for recycled content in, the, uh, in, in our plastic materials. Um, most brands are, are, are having, it's a, it's a challenge to get to the levels of recycled content that they need to, need to get to. And how to assure those material loops requires, again, a combination of technology interventions along with policy interventions. Um, you know, the UK plastics packaging tax, for example, uh, was designed so that it would flow into infrastructure investment in order to ensure that we had the right mechanical reprocessing facilities in order to drive circularity of those materials. You know, these things require, you know, that political action. It requires that kind of follow through as well in terms of business and policy making and technology working together in order to be able to uh, deliver upon those objectives. Very good. I'm sure you'll agree that this discussion has touched upon a number of interesting areas in the sustainability debate, and I'm sure we'll be exploring this further in the weeks to come once we learn more about the outcomes from COP27. If you'd like to take a look at our report findings in more detail, check out the link in the episode show notes, and you can see some great examples of how SAP is helping customers of all sizes meet their own sustainability obligations at www.sap.com forward slash sustainability. Thanks for listening.